great travels are a lot more than just looking at the scenery. Hi, I'm Rick Steves. Actor Andrew McCarthy joins us today on Travel with Rick Steves to share tales from the world travels that actors have brought back from being on location. Even when your travels wander off script, it can be just another invitation to make new friends. Even if I don't need it sometimes just to sort of break the ice with people, I just say, can, can you help me? And they go, oh, you're from America. Oh, I have a cousin in Poughkeepsie. And, blah, blah, blah. and all of a sudden, you're at their house for dinner. And even if you don't hold season tickets to the opera, my interview with Fred Plotkin might just convince you to make a night at the opera a high note of your next trip. If you are removed from the worries and stresses of daily life and can sit surrounded by beauty, surrounded by emotion, it's a very transporting event. We'll also check in with listeners looking for a little help planning their next trip to Europe. Come along as we do the next best thing to taking a trip, talking about it. It's Travel with Rick Steves. It's only a number, but we're celebrating today on Travel with Rick Steves because this is show number 300. Seven and a half years after we embarked on our radio adventures together, we're having more fun than ever. We're glad you could come along today as we expand our horizons and enjoy the world. Coming up, Fred Plotkin recommends how to enjoy a sensory-filled getaway at the opera. And listeners look for a little help finalizing their next European vacation plans. Let's start with actor-turned-travel writer Andrew McCarthy. He's collected 33 memorable travel tales from other actors, screenwriters, and even a few TV personalities in an anthology called Lights, Camera, Travel, on-the-road tales from screen storytellers. Andrew, thanks for joining us. Oh, it's great to be here, Rick. This book that you've written, explain it to us. Why would you combine travelers and actors and screenwriters? I was approached by the folks at Lonely Planet to see if I uh, thought it might be a good idea to create an anthology of stories by actors about their travels. You know, actors are a notoriously vagabond breed who wander the earth and travel a great deal for work and whatnot. You know, actors tell stories. That's what we do for a living. And... We thought it might be an interesting idea to try and combine the two and see how that worked. I thought initially that it was a really interesting idea, but I thought it would be very difficult actually to get actors to sit down and do the task. It was a bit like herding cats, you know. But I reached out to a bunch of actors I knew, and I just said, we're going to put together this book. Do you have a travel story, one that changed your life, a place that something happened to you, whether it was funny, sad, moving, whether you came of age there, something like that. And... Nine out of ten of them leapt at the idea and go, yeah, I got one, instantly. Wow. And so we just said, okay, write it. Tell me your story. I think the actors love the idea of just being able to do what they do, tell stories in a way that is not the way they normally do it. But, I mean, actors love stories. They know how to, they know how to tell a story from A to Z. They know about characters and dialogue and, all, and setting a, a place. And so I think they really jumped at the idea of communicating a different aspect of themselves that they really... It, it surprised me how effective the stories were and how well the book came off, frankly. It does make sense, doesn't it? Because actors have to share a story. And people is what really invigorates a travel experience, and actors get across these personalities. You said there's 33 different stories from 33 different actors and uh, artists here. Uh, you said most of them had life-changing experience. Give us an example of uh, somebody we might know who had a life-changing experience on the road and wrote about it for your book. Well, Alec Baldwin wrote a, a lovely story that sort of starts out the book about his experiences in Los Angeles. You know, Los Angeles is a funny place to an actor. It's either Mecca or the Ninth Ring, Ninth Circle, you know. So every actor has a very distinct relationship with Los Angeles. And Alec really captured that that feeling about the place. You know, to a regular traveler, Los Angeles might be one thing. But to an actor, it's it's fraught with all sorts of different meaning. And I think Alec really captured that, and it captured his relationship to himself in show business and how that's tied into a specific place and how, over time, that relationship changes. You know, it's interesting when we go back to a place over and over again over the years. You know this. When you go back to your places that you travel, something about it, it seems different, and it's not necessarily the place. It's our relationship to the place or our relationship to how we see the world that starts to change. And I think Alec captured that beautifully in his story. I thought it was just very insightful. He said, if New York City's a river, Los Angeles is a lake. It's got no current. Yeah. You have to row to get there. This was in his early days, and, and he just didn't like Los Angeles. He loved New York. That's where he thought the energy and, and, the, and the movement was. 
I, I have to say and, I agree with him. And, yeah. <laughs> and then, and in the beginning, he, he wrote about how Santa Monica Bay lifeguards are getting cancer because there's so much uh, yuck in the water and the air was like mustard gas. And it just really wasn't, he had to go there apparently for his work, but it, it wasn't quite the same. And then later he warmed up to it. Yeah, I think there's some, you know, really interesting stories too in the book. There's one about uh, this fellow named Dan Bukatinsky, who's an actor and a writer as well. He wrote a story about being in Ireland when uh, September 11th happened and the feeling of being far from home and what that felt like and to be in a place, particularly Ireland, where there's such a strong connection to America. Everybody in Ireland has a relative in America and what it felt like to be so far from home and yet sort of embraced and sort of babysat and taken care of while he was away. It was a really poignant story and then how he was always afraid to go back to Ireland because it reminded him so much of that moment and then him finally taking his family and and going back to Ireland and sort of processing through that grief in that time, you know, to using travel as a way to sort of deal with our issues in life, which I think, you know, travel is a wonderful way of doing, helping us process things. And actors are predisposed to do that, I would think. I mean, actors, actors love to show off, you know, and tell a tale. When I sit around on a set, actors love nothing better than to sort of one-up each other with a good story of their tales and where they've been. And, oh, you went there? Oh, well, when I went down the Amazon, <laughs> you know, that kind of thing. So, I think it was a perfect fit. I mean, it was much easier than I thought it would be, frankly, to galvanize these people. And it it sort of came together to have a certain overreaching theme of, you know, what happens and how travel changes us and how travel is a great equalizer. You know, we all have these projections of what actors are like and they present their personas in certain ways. That's why I liked Alex's story so much. I mean, it, it got beyond very quickly the persona that we think we have. Like, there's a story by Brooke Shields, and we think of Brooke as this elegant, sort of sophisticated woman, and there she is sleeping in some igloo up in northern Canada, and it's a, travel's a great equalizer. We're all just out there shivering in the cold in the igloo together, you know, and I, I think that's wonderful, and it's wonderful the way the actors sort of just gave it up for that. Right now on Travel with Rick Steves, we're chatting with Andrew McCarthy. His fame as an actor comes from the so-called Brat Pack films he starred in back in the 1980s, like Weekend at Bernie's and Pretty in Pink. In 2011, he won the Lowell Thomas Award for his travel writing. He's also edited the Lonely Planet anthology Lights, Camera, Travel with our friend Don George with travel tales from on-screen celebrities and even from yours truly. Andrew's newest book is a memoir called The Longest Way Home. His website is andrewmccarthy.com. Andrew, we were talking about how there's so much on the road that that you can... uh, brag about when you sit down with your friends and so on, and actors would do this just like anybody else. You and Don write in the introduction that filmmakers love to say making a movie is easier on the back lot, but richer on the road. I think that that speaks uh, volumes for what travel can bring you. Yeah, I mean, even here on the streets of New York City, I do more and more directing now, and I I direct some television shows, and when we're on the stage, it's very contained, and it's it's fine, but we do all the work. When we go out on the street... 90% of the work is done. New York is just buzzing, and you have to just fit into it and get into that current, and you're along for the ride. And that's what travel does. You know, we have the best laid plans, and then once you get in the current, it just takes you and sweeps you up. And, you know, it's best to throw those plans out the window, as you well know. you got to ride with it. It makes for a better story. It makes for better travel. It certainly makes for more memorable travel, for sure. It's always a thing that goes wrong that didn't go according to plan, that and that guy who came and saved you, who pointed you in the right direction, that's always what we remember about a trip. Now, actors by their sort of trade are, are free spirits and so on, and you said uh, editing this collection of 33 travel articles was like herding cats. Tell me some of the frustrations of making your deadlines and so on. <laughs> I, know, I know your partner, Don George, had some frustrations in that, too, he was sharing with me. <laughs> well, that's one of the reasons I brought Don into it. I, I thought, I need a grown-up in here to help me out. Um, well, we were smart enough initially to give them a deadline that was, frankly, it was false, said we need these by, you know, September 15th when we knew October 15th would be the deadline. And come September 15th, I had exactly zero stories. And then emails, how's it coming? <laughs> how's it coming? And then you hear nothing back and then finally you hear back, huh? Right. <laughs> I remember writing Brooke Shields and going, Brooke, how's the story coming? And she went, what story? was the email I got back. And a week later, she produced a beautiful story. But uh, I just think actors had other things on their minds, you know, and it, they certainly weren't doing it for the money. It was just out of the realm of what they normally do. But it was a challenge to sort of get them to turn it in. But once they did, like I said, it required surprisingly little editing. <laughs> that must have been a... Uh, a relief. When it finally got in, yeah. It's interesting now, you've, you've been dealing with actors uh, that have been, you know, um, tried their hand at travel writing. 
in the process, you can probably think of ways that actors have skills that can help both a writer and, and help a traveler. You write in the intro, Hollywood types are a nomadic breed, traveling with an eye for finding characters, observing details of behavior that can be logged away and stored for a future date, catching lines of dialogue that unlock a character. And in your life as a, as a traveler, um, how can the skills that an actor hones be utilized to make travel more vivid and, and more rewarding? I just think if we stay curious and stay open to what's right in front of us, we often keep our nose in the guidebook and we think we know where we're going and just stop for a second, look around, be where you are, and the world just opens up to us. You know, and that would happen even our own, you know, our own main street, but we are so used to it, we don't see it. But I think when we travel, if we can sort of give it up and be where we are and be open to the experience that's there to be had, it will be memorable and often life-changing. You know, I just think we have to sort of give up our, our main plan often. You're right that unlocking a character on the road is key to a good experience. It's always just connecting with people, isn't it? How, how do you do that, though? I mean, it's easy to say that. How do you do it? Can you help me? <laughs> That's the first thing I say. I mean, I've never had anyone say no, and I, I always ask for help. Even if I don't need it sometimes, just to sort of break the ice with people, I just say, can, can you help me? And they go, oh, you're from America. Oh, I have a cousin in Poughkeepsie, and blah, blah, blah. And all of a sudden, you're at their house for dinner. I've had that happen a handful of times. You know, and just being willing to say yes. I think the world is a much safer place than we, than we fear. And when we get out there and start embracing it, wonderful experiences are there waiting for us. I, I often find asking for help just absolutely the greatest thing you can do because you get it and it just opens yourself up. And people want to help. Everyone has a pride about where they live to a certain degree and they want to show the visitor like, oh, oh, come over here, come over here. I've had that happen tons. I found if you look lost, even if you're not lost, sometimes it helps. Mm-hmm. Absolutely. I, I do play a bit dumb, particularly when I'm writing. I'll play a bit dumb with people. Go, oh, well, I'm sorry, what do, what do you mean? And have them just sort of take me by the hand and guide me. And it's a very liberating experience. And I'm often brought in in ways that I wouldn't have been. For sure, I'll play dumber than I am. So we've talked about there's great ways that the skills of an actor can help a traveler. Let's flip it around. Andrew, let's finish just with a thought. How can the skills of a good traveler help an actor in his work? I mean, the best thing an actor can be in his work is completely present. And subjectively right in the moment, and it's the same thing for a traveler. Just look up and go, whoa, look at that. I'm going over there. <laughs> I think they're the same thing. Words of wisdom. Andrew McCarthy, thanks so much, and best wishes in your directing and in your acting and in your travel writing. Thanks, sir. How do you do? How do you do? Fine, how are you? Fine, how are you? Great day to see you in, great world to be in, sunshine brightly, since we're celebrating Travel with Rick Steves, show number 300 today, we've invited one of our favorite guests to join us for the occasion. Fred Plotkin calls himself a pleasure activist, and he's one of the best spokespeople I've heard for expanding your worldview and maybe even your waistline, discovering what people in many places have to show us about the good life. In addition to Italy for the Gourmet Traveler, Fred has also authored a definitive guide called Opera 101, a complete guide to learning and loving opera, which includes a foreword from Placido Domingo. Fred joins us next with tips for getting the most out of attending the opera, whether at one of Europe's grand venues or even just listening to it on the radio. Act Two is a minute away. It's Travel with Rick Steves. A challenge for us travelers is to have experiences, to enjoy other cultures with all the sensuality possible. And one great opportunity that a lot of us miss is opera. We're joined today by Fred Plotkin. Fred's a bon vivant author. He's a self-described pleasure activist. And 
He's an expert in opera. We've talked to Fred before about Italian cuisine. Now we're going to talk to Fred about opera. His guidebook to opera is Opera 101, a complete guide to learning and loving opera. Fred Plotkin, thanks for joining us. Thank you. It kind of reminds me of in the movie when, when Harry met Sally. Remember the, the woman was sort of having an orgasm over her beautiful dinner, and uh, somebody else goes, uh, I'll have what she's having. I, I get that sense when I'm in Europe. Other people are just into opera. How can we get in on the ecstasy? Well, that's the first time I've ever heard opera compared to a pastrami sandwich. <laughs> I would just ratchet up the verb a bit and say rather than appreciate opera, we, we love opera. And the people who tell me they hate opera tend to be the people who had the bad experience as a child of being taken without preparation and having to sit in a five-hour Wagnerian marathon. Wagner is fabulous, but not for kids. The thing about opera is it is a projection of who we are. And among the many things we love about opera is we see the whole range of human experience and emotion and passions that in our rather polite, politically correct society we don't permit ourselves to talk about. But nonetheless, believe me, we still experience all these things. So the place where many opera lovers go to share those feelings is in the opera house. Combine that with the fact that you've taken great stories, set them to music, now, where the problem is for many people is they think they're supposed to understand everything through the words. So if the opera is in Italian or German or French, they say, I don't get it. My answer is read the story or the synopsis before, then listen to the music because that is where the story is told. Huh. So you wrote, open your heart without inhibitions and let the music flow through. My hang-up has been trying to be worried about, oh, I'm, I'm not following the plot completely, and, you know, of course, I don't speak the language. So we need to, like, ease up then. True. We are such a literal, analytical society, and everything in our education points us toward understanding. But I'm a believer that understanding is more at a visceral, hormonal level. We get it because we share the human experience. This conversation that we're having is a very intimate experience among friends who have never met personally, but are friends. And it's that same experience at the opera. You may not personally know the singer, but she's your friend in that you know her voice, you know what she looks like. And when she sings for you, now, mind you, it is without a microphone. And nowadays, to hear sound that is unmitigated by electronics is very rare. And here they're singing beautifully over an orchestra that is not amplified. This is a very sensorial experience, and that's why we have this intimacy and this excitement. People who go to the opera thinking they're supposed to follow the story in words are missing out on the main experience. As I was reading your book, it occurred to me, Shakespeare is another challenge for a lot of people. There's no doubt opera and Shakespeare are really fundamental in culture. They're just so undeniably really important. But a lot of people have a tough time with it. And Shakespeare and Hopper have something in common. They're just masterful at dealing with the human experience. Hamlet is often compared to Mozart's Don Giovanni in that they are so global, so universal, that whatever we walk into the theater with and then encounter from the actors of the singers in the telling of the story that night is what we take away so that if we are having romantic issues and go to see Don Giovanni and discover that he seems to be on top of his game in terms of love and romance and sex, but in fact he's not, where we connect to that may be through his character and maybe through one of the three women we meet in the opera who he tries to seduce. The thing about masterpieces is they are not plain and simple. They're prismatic. It's like holding up a cut crystal. If you turn it slightly, you see a different reflection of something else. What we put into that reflection, that facet, is what we get back. I, w I would imagine you've seen some operas dozens of times. Hundreds of times. Hundreds of times. Literally hundreds. I'm not exaggerating. It's like holding up a crystal, huh? You can look at it depending on where you're at in that part of your life, or what does the venue mean to you, or, or who are the performers? Well... All of that, for example, the fact that, let's take Madama Butterfly by Puccini. 
I saw it for the first time when I was 18 in Bologna. Madame Butterfly is 18 in the opera, but the woman playing it was 40. I didn't yet realize that she was playing 18 because I was 18. As I've gotten older and as I've had different life experiences, the story of this Japanese woman who has a baby with an American sailor who shows up and then disappears and then comes back and takes the baby away, all sung in Italian, can seem very strange. But when you realize that what this is about is love, abandonment, selfishness, parental affection, the older you get and the more experience you have, the more you relate to that same Mm -hmm. opera differently. If you see different productions in different places that tell the story differently and then hear different women singing the role of Madame Butterfly, it all changes. So we live, we opera lovers live with these operas over the arc of a lifetime. So Madame Butterfly didn't mean much to me at 18. It means a lot to me now. Perhaps La Boheme, which I found very gripping when I was a 20-year-old, has a different meaning now because it's about a phase of life that I've passed, and I'm now in other phases of life. So opera is there to reflect who we are. Now, when you go to an opera many, many times over the course of your life as an opera lover, it kind of raises the bar for the performers to bring something intimate and and, uh, unique to the performance, I would imagine, also. There's a lot expected out of the performers other than just performing well musically. What I try to do is go not with the history of every Madame Butterfly I've seen before me, but to step into the theater and see the woman who's singing it and let her give me her version. Now, when we go to the opera, we are, let's say you've flown from New York to Vienna or Milan. You might be jet-lagged. You might be in a different mood. You might be in an elated mood. We see these works repeatedly just the way we reread certain iconic books, go back Mm. and look at great films and paintings and plays, because they are works of art that offer different things at different times. So I try as an audience member to arrive fresh, alert, and with no preconceptions. I'm Rick Steves. This is Travel with Rick Steves. We're speaking with Fred Plotkin, and and Fred writes the How to Appreciate Opera book. It's called Opera 101, A Complete Guide to Learning and Loving Opera. Fred, an opera takes usually three hours or more. In in this speedy 21st century, is it outmoded, or or can you make a case that it's more important than ever that we, we take this time? On the contrary, it's more important than ever. You know how we sit down to a slow meal and we enjoy it more because we can savor everything. If you are removed from the worries and stresses of daily life and can sit surrounded by beauty, surrounded by emotion, surrounded by other people who are similarly experiencing that emotion and beauty, it's a very transporting event. And I think it's necessary just the way some people go to the gym to, quote, zone out. Other people will go for a long walk. Other people will meditate. Many of us go to the opera, not to escape, but to deepen ourselves, but not in the sense of self-improvement, but in the sense of giving in. I don't analyze when I go to the opera. I pay attention, but I let everything come into me. And then when I leave the theater, that's when I start putting the pieces together. Now, when you leave the theater, Fred, sometimes do you think, ah, it just wasn't quite right, and other times... Everything came together. This was, I'll always remember this evening. Yes. I I can pinpoint for you, as any opera lover can, the great experiences they've had. In my case, the greatest performance I ever saw was in April of 1979 in Barcelona. And it starred Montserrat Caballet, Jose Carreras, and Juan Pons, all of them Catalan, singing in an opera called Andrea Chenier. It is one of my favorite operas. These were three Catalan artists playing to the home crowd, like Barcelona's football club playing at home. Because Catalonia had just become somewhat independent in the political events that happened after the death of Francisco Franco, for the first time they were allowed to speak in Catalan, so the program was printed in Catalan, all of which is to say that the audience that night experienced identity with the stars. I'm getting goosebumps as I'm talking to you. 
And the stars were energized by this and really pulled out all the stops, sang the music fantastically well, and the ovations went on for more than an hour after the performance ended. Whoa. (laughs) Oh, my goodness. And you still remember that from 1979. I could hear it as if it were yesterday. Oh, my goodness. What was the hall? What, where was that performance? It's the Teatro Liceu, L-I-C-E-U, oh, okay. in right. Barcelona on the Ramblas next to the Bocadilla Market. Again, I'm Rick Steves. This is Travel with Rick Steves. We're talking with Fred Plotkin. And, Fred, if we're planning a trip, um, Europe is sort of the, um, the heartland of opera. What, France, Italy, Austria, and Germany would be the great classic countries for opera? And the Czech Republic and Russia. Okay. And if you're, if you're going to Europe, what's the checklist of great opera houses to um, try to experience? Well, there's a wonderful website I use called Operissimo, O-P-E-R-I-S-S-I-M-O dot com, that lists opera houses and their websites in 46 countries. And whenever I plan a trip, what I tend to do is say, okay, I'm planning to go to Berlin Let's see what's on in Berlin in March. And then once I see what's on, then I pick my flight dates based on that. So it's a very valuable tool. Hmm. But Berlin is fascinating because they have three opera houses. One of them is the old opera house from before World War II. One of them is the Deutsches Opera in West Berlin that was built after the wall went up. And then there's the Komische Opera, the comic opera, which is an older company as well, so that in Berlin, every night of the year practically, you have three operas to choose from. So it's a great destination. I wouldn't say it's the best, but it's great. Wow, that's quite a public demand for opera that they could put on three different operas each night in one city. Well, bless the Berliner's heart, they fund the arts more in the city of Berlin than the entire United States government does for arts in our 50 states. Wow. And I, I know in, in Austria, in Vienna, they do a lot to fund the arts. Uh, last time I was in Vienna, they actually had a big screen in front of the opera house so people who couldn't afford to get in or were not able to get tickets could actually enjoy the opera uh, as it was being performed inside. Actually, though, that's copied from the Metropolitan Opera. It was invented in New York. Oh, is that right? Okay. Other companies are doing it now. It's done in the baseball stadiums in Washington and San Francisco and Many theaters do it, but it was invented and premiered at the Metropolitan Opera. Let's talk about great potential experiences as you're traveling. Um, what about great outdoor venues? Uh, I used to go to the Baths of Caracalla in Rome for the opera. That's a great one. Another one that is off the charts a bit that people don't know is Bregenz in western Austria. It's done on Lake Constance, and they build a raft on the lake. And... On that raft is the scenery. So the performers go out in boats before the performance or perhaps swim out and get into costume and they're all backstage behind the scenery on the raft and come forward. And we audience members sit on land looking out at the raft. (laughs) And it's a wonderful experience, acoustically not the best, but fascinating nonetheless. What about the uh, Verona has opera in it? Verona in the Arena di Verona was built in 100 A.D., and people descend from all over Europe. There are about 19,000 seats. This is done in the summers, and they do grand opera, which is to say massive productions, crowds of thousands. When I was a teenager, I worked there in the summers as an assistant director and a gopher, And what you need to know about Verona, wonderful magical setting, great food after the opera, wonderful pizzas right across the street, but bring an umbrella. Ah. In Great Britain, there is Glyndebourne. Glyndebourne is this wonderful meadow that you go out to and you sit and you bring a wonderful catered picnic. The British dressed in tuxedos and gowns to sit on the ground to feast on oysters and champagne and grouse and all of that. And they really turn out for that. The productions are wonderful, too. But so much of what Glyndebourne is about is the audience experience. How do you spell Glyndebourne? G-L-Y-N-D-E-B-O-U-R-N-E, near London. You know, I was in Venice recently, and there's a palazzo where you have opera scenes going through this incredible palace. And I thought it was so magical to take you back to see the opera kind of in the proper context historically 
Have you been to that? Yes. Well, opera, as we know, it was not invented in Venice. It was invented in Florence, but it didn't really get off the ground until it reached Venice, which was the first great city of opera. And in the first century of opera, from 1597 to 1697, they built 17 opera houses in Venice and premiered 388 new works in Venice. No city in the world can match that. And you probably went to the Palazzo Vendramin, uh-huh. where they do these kind of backstage uh, at the opera through history events. Wagner lived there. Fred, take us to a memorable opera experience you've had recently and inspire us to enjoy opera properly. Every time I walk into a theater, I have the expectation that this will be a great and memorable night. And that can happen either because it's an opera I don't know or one I love, but most typically it happens when I hear a singer who just absolutely blows me away because people who are old and I'm oldish always say there are no good singers anymore. I walked into a theater the other night, the Metropolitan Opera, and heard a young soprano from Centralia, Washington, named Angela Mead, who absolutely brought the house down. She was singing the very difficult role of Anna Bolena, or Anne Boleyn, where she replaced the very famous star Anna Netrebko, who's a great star. Angela Mead absolutely nailed the music. Her drama, her passion was infectious. And when she came forward for her curtain call, the theater exploded. There she was stepping in, in effect, for someone who was a very famous star and so completely overwhelming the audience with her talent. She's in her early 30s. So when you hear someone like that and you say, I was there for it, you can tell that story for the rest of your life. You can remember it. And frankly, now that we have things such as satellite radio where these performances are recorded, they will be accessible to us in the future. And so I always say, expect greatness, and you'll be lucky to find it. Fred Plotkin, author of Opera 101, Complete Guide to Learning and Loving Opera. Thanks a lot. Thank you. Bravo. There's more with Fred Plotkin in this week's program details, including a link to Fred's opera blog hosted by WQXR in New York and to his book, Opera 101. You can also listen to past visits we've enjoyed with Fred discussing the pleasures of Italy, Finland, and Vienna in our radio archives. Look in the radio section of ricksteves.com. Next, we open the phones at 877-333-7425 to discuss how to turn your European vacation travel plans into the trip of a lifetime. Putting together an exciting trip overseas is a huge investment of both time and money. And if we can enjoy the planning stage of that trip, actually getting in the mood for it, getting prepared, exploring your options, putting together a smart itinerary before we fly away, the actual trip itself becomes much more efficient and you extend the fun of your trip by actually enjoying the preparation stage as well. Today we're going to take a few minutes just to share some notes and talk about how we can put trips together And our phone number is 877-333-7425. Our email address is radio at ricksteves.com. Cullen's on the line in St. Paul, Minnesota. Cullen, thanks for your call. Howdy. Um, You know, about a year ago, I had a chance to walk the Camino de Santiago uh, based on your recommendation, actually, and had such an amazing time. I've been trying to find other opportunities that would be a similar experience, and I'm, I'm kind of striking out, and I'm wondering wow. what, what I can do that will uh, sort of take me back to the, the joy I felt on the Camino. Colin, first of all, for our listeners that uh, don't know what the Camino de Santiago is, uh, tell us how long was it, uh, how many miles, how long did it take you, where'd you hike? Well, um, I was only able to take 
two weeks off, the, the really fortunate people are able to take like a whole month and walk um, from the French border with Spain in the north all the way across Spain to uh, Santiago de Compostela on this ancient pilgrim trail. Since I only had two weeks, I started sort of in the middle in Lyon and walked right around 300 miles. And it's through just beautiful countryside and meeting amazing people and having both a really personal and a really global experience. Colin, would you recommend doing it alone or, or with a travel partner? I did it alone, and I sort of expected to go and spend this time in my own head, sort of, you know, doing this deep thinking. And, and probably the most shocking thing was how many friends I made along the way from all around the world. And so I I think personally, I, I think going alone is this amazing experience because it really forces you to yeah. um, engage with other people. I think going with another person, it might be too easy to cut yourself off. You know, that's what I would think, too. I'm, I'm kind of surprised, actually, when people do it with friends, because the whole idea is to be alone and to meet people you wouldn't meet otherwise and sort of be lost in the experience. Did you see that movie, uh, The Way? Absolutely. Yeah, it's a fun movie if you're thinking about the Community Santiago. Well, you know, the Community Santiago is really the granddaddy of all these pilgrimage routes. I, I can't think of another one that even comes close to it. Uh, having said that, there are lots of extended hikes around Europe that people do with a pilgrimage kind of approach. In London, there's a, a well-known pilgrimage uh, route from London to Canterbury with the Samuel Beckett kind of shrine. Uh, that was famous from the Canterbury Tales. Also remember, there are many routes to Santiago de Compostela, so you've got plenty of different trails that cut through Portugal and through different parts of Spain. To get there, you could do that. And then there's a, a trail across Italy, which is an old pilgrimage trail lacing together old market towns that works all the way down to the Vatican, uh, through the center of Italy that you could consider. And I've got some friends in Italy that are very enthusiastic about that trail. And it's not quite as developed as the community Santiago, but that would be a good excuse to get out into the countryside and get in touch with yourself and, uh, you know, live with the, in the wilds of that country and also encounter other hikers. But, you know, the magic thing about the community Santiago, I think to a great extent, is the people you meet along the way. And there's no place in Europe where you have that community of pilgrims like you get on the community Santiago. Well, I, I suppose, luckily, uh, as you say, there are many ways to hike it, and I'm hoping to someday be able to do the whole thing because I, right. it, it was really a transformative experience. Actually, that's what I would recommend. I mean, you, you, like a lot of us, we only have two weeks to get off or something. I met a lot of people over there who are doing the Camino year after year in segments because they only had enough time to do a segment this year, and uh, they seem to feel like that worked really well. All right. Thanks for your call, Colin. Well, thank you. Let us know what your next pilgrimage is and, uh, and how it turns out. Indeed. Thanks. Clara's on the line in Cincinnati. Clara, thanks for your call. Oh, thank you. I got a chance to talk to you uh, before my trip to Turkey a couple of years ago, and now I'm talking to you again before my trip to Spain. So I know you recently went to Barcelona and Madrid. I'm about to go to both cities pretty soon here, and I wanted to know if on this most recent visit, what you noticed that had changed or surprised you? Well, Barcelona is just a happening city, and there's just a lot of people recognizing it as one of the great destinations in Europe. I would say uh, the big news for me in Barcelona is that the interior of the, the wonderful Gaudi church, the Sagrada Familia, is actually enclosed and, and consecrated. It was consecrated a, a couple years ago by the Pope, and it's actually ready for worship. It's, uh, I, I didn't dream I'd actually be able to see this. I went in there previously with a hard hat with my uh, film crew as it was under construction, and now it feels like a church that's uh, ready for prime time. They're still working on it, but don't overlook the opportunity to actually go into the Sagrada Familia, the wonderful uh, Art Nouveau or Modernist church by Antonio Gaudi. Also, there's other Gaudi sites that are open now that hadn't been open in the past. So if you're interested in that, uh, check that out. You know, a lot of people are always going on the Ramblas in Barcelona and the La Bocaria Market. That's wonderful, but the La Bocaria Market is getting a little bit touristy, and that changes the character of who the merchants there and what they're selling, and it's becoming a little bit uh, of a tourist trap. And I think uh, there's a market in the Gothic Quarter called uh, St. Catherine's Market that I found much more interesting than the Bocaria. So you could um, balance your experience by visiting both of those. You know, Barcelona is a place that you'll just feel a, an amazing energy and be sure to get down on the waterfront. This is the, the newly kind of uh, sort of gentrified quarter where it's kind of like an open-air modern art museum. They've got great modern art, wonderful pedestrian streets, easy to rent a bike and go exploring, and I'd highly recommend checking out the area called Barceloneta and then the whole strip of beaches that they've uh, put together just in the last um, decade or two. 
I hope that's a little bit of help for you, Clara. Thank you very much. That's great. Okay. Happy travels. Thanks, Clara. I'm Rick Steves. This is Travel with Rick Steves. Our phone number is 877-333-7425. And we're sharing information, comparing notes, making sure we're all prepared to enjoy our next international travels. Judy's on the line in Northport, Florida. Judy, thanks for your call. Mm, I am so thrilled because you have been my guru for my last three trips, and you have never set me wrong. Whoa. I mean, from Vernaza to Rue Claire to the hotel with the little elevator. Oh, yeah. So this time I'm expanding my Italy and France, and I'm going to Spain in November probably. And Barcelona and parts all over, maybe Morocco. But I would like to know, because of the uh, employment deficit there and the euro being very weak, but that's my parrot. Um, (laughs) Sorry. Anyway, I'm 75. My friend that travels with me is 50, and I'm spry. I mean, I climbed up to the top of St. Peter's in the cupola at 70, so it's not like I'm infirmed. I just want a place that's safe. Right. And I wondered what the attitude was and what a safe place would be. And I want to rent an apartment. I get a sense that your parrot is really concerned about this trip. She hates me talking on the phone. Oh, I see. Okay. Well, I, On my shoulder, I look like a, a grandma pirate. <laughs> well, what's your parrot's name? I hope you've got a good place for Bill during this trip because it sounds exciting. First of all, when there is uh, economic problems and so on, uh, you have to be careful because there's more unemployed people and there's more petty theft and purse snatchings and yeah, pickpocketing and I've, this sort of thing. I've taken all your precautions, money belt, yeah. uh, not wearing fancy jewelry. Yeah, well, Judy, remember, yeah, there's some economic hard times, in, especially in Southern Europe. But the overall trend for the last decade has been, you know, more and more affluence and more gentrification and, and less theft. Uh, I remember Spain, you know, 15, 20 years ago, it was at a, at a stop sign. People would break your window and reach in and grab your purse. And I don't hear about that so much anymore. The last couple of years, there's been a little dip in that trend of uh, increased affluence. But I haven't heard of Spain being a particular problem right now. But you're smart to use the, the common sense precautions. Don't leave valuables out. You know, leave your valuables in the hotel rather than with you as you're traveling around. And uh, do remember that if there are thieves in town, they, they usually target Americans, but it's not a violent crime. It's just a petty person snatching or pickpocketing if you let your guard down. Now, when it comes to where to stay, are you thinking of, on your trip, settling down for a little while in Barcelona? Well, we thought we'd stay there for two weeks and then, you know, take day trips or take an overnight but keep the apartment. Yeah, well, apartments for two weeks are going to be a lot cheaper than hotels for one week, you know, so if you can get an apartment, that's a good idea. Uh, Your choice really is to stay in the atmospheric, if claustrophobic, old part of town, the the Gothic Quarter or El Bourne, or to stay in the more upscale Echample area. Okay. You know, they both have their pros and cons. If you like characteristic neighborhoods, if you like to step out of the, your apartment or hotel and be on a cobbled street with tall medieval buildings around you and lots of funky little shops, well, then you want to go into the atmospheric, if claustrophobic, Gothic Quarter or El Bourne. If you want to step out and have, you know, um, bright and energetic sidewalks and uh, boulevards and fancy landscaping and finer shops, well, then the Echample is the place to go. Personally, I would choose the old town and then be sure to take full advantage of public transit. And if there's two of you in Barcelona, taxis are just a great deal. Uh, I would just either, um, you know, get a, a metro pass and use the subway. And when that lets you down, just hop in a taxi because they're, they're amazingly uh, efficient and uh, fair and economic. Okay, that's great. I appreciate your information because I've sat there and said, well, they're in so much trouble and people are yeah. going to be knocking me over my over my head. No. <laughs> well, my yeah, any, anybody who's thinking about traveling to Europe, and we always hear about this economic crisis, you got to keep things in perspective. Media, by its nature here these days, makes things pretty hysterical because then more people watch and they get more money selling their advertising. Oh, sure. um, I would say 
to remember that here in the United States and in Europe, we're on a global scale, we're all pretty, you know, we're, we're very fortunate. In fact, we're filthy rich on a global scale. Most of right. 90% of humanity <laughs> wishes they had our problems. Nevertheless, you know, Southern Europe has some serious problems, and I wouldn't want to be a worker in Spain counting on a, on a retirement. Uh, but if you're a traveler going through there, I was just in Spain for about three weeks, and the economic crisis hardly occurred to me. It, it felt very energetic. It was oh, restaurants were thriving. Uh, everybody seemed to be in a great mood. I, I had a wonderful time, specifically in Barcelona. So good luck on your trip, Judy. Well, thank you so much. Okay, bye now. Okay, bye. Our phone number is 877-333-7425. Our email address is radio at com. Judith from Duxbury, Massachusetts, emails us, and she writes, My husband and I are headed to Paris for a week. We'd like to take a day trip and have narrowed down our choices to Givernay or Versailles. Uh, we're both interested in art and try to avoid crowds as much as possible. What are your thoughts? Well, I would say, of course, Versailles is the home of the greatest palace in Europe. It's uh, about an hour outside of Paris, and Givernay, also about an hour outside of Paris, is the well, it's where Monet had his garden and his uh, studio and ended his, uh, spent his last years. Fans of Impressionist paintings, uh, for them it's like a pilgrimage to go to Giverny. Versailles is, I think, arguably Europe's single grandest palace. If you're trying to avoid crowds, it's a lousy place to go because it is very crowded, but it's the ultimate palace in Europe. Giverny, on the other hand, is relaxing and it's thrilling to Monet fans, but I would say its charms are pretty subtle for people who aren't into Impressionism. If I had just one day to spend outside of Paris, I think I'd choose Versailles, but Judith is saying she's interested in art and wants to avoid crowds. In that case, probably Giverny, G-I-V-E-R-N-Y, is for you. And Gary's on the line in Clinton Township, Michigan. Hey, Gary. Hi, Rick. How you doing? Great. Do you have a thought or a question about putting your trip together? Um, I wanted to know, has Europe changed much in the last 30 years? Has it become more Americanized? And if me and my wife do go, are we still going to be able to experience the old Europe, as it were, or is it too late to do that? You know, that's a, just a beautiful question, and it's, I've thought about that a lot because I've been going to Europe now for 35 years or something like that, and of course it's, it's more affluent and there's much better infrastructure, there's better... Uh, orthodontia, you know, people are standing up straight, they've got beautiful teeth, they're living longer. <laughs> Every, you know, that's all just part of affluence. Um, uh, and technology has made things, you know, a, a little more all the same and a little more sleek and efficient. And, and the downside of that is it's there's a little bit less characteristic kind of rough edges. Right. And, and these days, you know, everybody seems to have their smartphone or their tablets and they're all connected uh, with each other. So, uh, right. you know, that's just part of the, the modern world. But um, I would say... The passion for different ways of life and the distinct differences from culture to culture are as vivid as ever these days. And, oh, good. Uh, and, and it's really good news. For a lot of people, they would think as Europe unites, it's all going to be chain stores and, and homogeneity. But the right. counterintuitive result of the Union of Europe is that regions now are able to celebrate their ethnicity with, uh. with more openness because little separatist groups in France or Spain or, or Britain no longer threaten Paris or London or Madrid. You can secede from Spain, but you can't secede from Europe. And right. as Europe unites, everybody knows the you know, powers coming out of the Brussels and the EU headquarters. Uh, uh, therefore, Madrid and, and Paris and, and London can kind of read the writing on the walls, and they're not so threatened by Catalonians teaching their children to speak Catalan instead of Spanish at home. So... I think yeah. that's very good news. You know, a, a good example of how things are, how Europe is sticking with its traditions in Bosnia, in Bosnia-Herzegovina recently, there was a, a McDonald's that opened up in Sarajevo. And right. there was all sorts of protests, and everybody was worried that it was going to put the traditional little kebab shops out of business. Uh -huh. And for the few weeks after that McDonald's opened up in Sarajevo, there was long lines, and there was a real huge buzz. But then the thrill wore off, and uh, uh -huh. these days that McDonald's is pretty sleepy, and all those little kebab shops that were uh, threatened by that continued to be packed. So, uh, you know, people have a passion for being Bulgarian or Norwegian or Portuguese. And I was uh -huh. just in Portugal, and people were eating their cod like it's the only thing you want to eat. And I was just <laughs> in Norway, and people are doing it like Norwegians, you know. And uh, yeah. I, I, I'm very um, encouraged by that. Well, that's good to hear. Yeah. Because 
me and my wife, we live next to Canada, and we go over there sometimes. And unfortunately, Canada is kind of turning into the 51st state, at least in Ontario. And it's no different than being in America, really. Yep. And that's, you know, you'll feel that at airports and this sort of thing in Europe and in the big cities a little more. Um, So it's probably a good reason to make a special point to favor the small towns and the the rural areas, because that's where you find people are embracing their traditions with a little more vigor. Okay. Well, thank you for the information. You bet. Have a great time. Thanks, Gary. Okay, you too. Bye now. Many of our listeners have traveled to all parts of the world and have found creative ways to tell us about it. Send us a brief report of your travels by email to radio at ricksteves.com or write us a haiku poem about your travel experiences. There's a link in the radio section of ricksteves.com for you to contact us. Here are some poetic impressions listeners have sent us about their travels in Japan. A trip to Japan is a natural for writing a travel haiku. Alyssa Jirasimenko writes us that she's been living in Matsuyama, Japan for the past few years. The city is the birthplace of Masaoka Shiki, who is considered a major figure in the development of modern haiku. Here's her image of the place in a poem. Matsuyama Castle, highlighted by rising sun, early morning jog. Richard Elsley from Thousand Oaks in sunny Southern California had this experience during a rainy season in Japan. We came to Japan brought summer sunshine with us. It's all used up now. However, Mike Clear from Vashon Island, Washington is no stranger to rain at home or in Japan. Rain in Tokyo. Umbrellas bobbing to pass. Faces there, then gone. While Matt Miller from Spokane, Washington remembers Tokyo a little differently. Went to Tokyo once lived off beer vending machines, got lost on Subway. Travel with Rick Steves is produced at Europe Through the Back Door in Edmonds, Washington by Tim Tatton with Sarah McCormick. Thanks to our colleagues at the Radio Foundation in New York and to Keith Stickelmeyer for reading today's travel haiku. You can search more than seven years' worth of program archives and hear Fred Plotkin explain the proper time to yell bravo at the opera. Look in the radio section of ricksteves.com. And we'll look for you next week with more Travel with Rick Steves. Each year, Rick Steves tour guides take free-spirited travelers on escorted tours all over Europe, one small group at a time. This year, you can choose from three dozen exciting itineraries covering the best of Europe from Ireland to Istanbul, Paris to St. Petersburg, and practically everywhere in between. For a free catalog and Rick's Tour Experience DVD, visit the tour pages at ricksteves.com.